1: This
0: week on Hangar Talk, scholarship money is coming fast. Make sure to get those applications in.
1: Let's find out about your top 10 airport restaurants. Also, GA pilots helping with Midwest flooding. We're going to get a pilot's insight on the 737 MAX accidents. All right, Dave, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hanger Talk 1056
0: turn right heading 130 parent back final one three two point four turn right with your
1: hosts Ian Twamley and David Julitz. This is Hanger Talk.
0: Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. All right, David, our guest this week, uh, Representative Sam Graves. He's the ranking member of uh, House Committee for Aviation. And uh, Tom Haines caught up with him to talk about the Boeing accident.
1: And Graves has some pretty distinct thoughts on a pilot training and how to avoid a situation like this in the future. Let's hear about it from Sam.
0: Okay, so the headlines this week, David, we talked about it: scholarship money. We we've mentioned in the past, you know, AOPA this year is giving out a million dollars in scholarships. Uh, that application is due April 2nd.
1: You know, I wish that uh, I was a student pilot because I would jump right on that, Ian. That's a million dollars. That's 80 scholarships for, for students and 20 for folks who already have a little flying under their belt or uh, for for teachers as well. So there's a lot on the table there.
0: Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Now, the Ray Foundation is making this all possible. In the past, we've given away a couple hundred thousand dollars a year through various donors, but this year, the Ray Foundation is really up the game and uh, kind of putting their money out to ensure the future of the pilot population.
1: I like hearing about that, Ian. We a tip of the hat, as you said, to the Ray Foundation, a million dollars for 100 scholarships from AOPA. And, and like you said at the top, April 2nd is the deadline, so we've got to jump on that pretty quick.
0: Yep, so just go to AOPA.org, search uh, scholarships, and you'll find it there. Also, another one that we wanted to talk about, targeted specifically at female pilots, L3 Aviation, their academy down in Florida, they're also offering up some pretty decent money.
1: That's right, Ian. I'm glad you mentioned it. We are just coming off of Women in Aviation International Week, so this kind of makes sense for them. They pledged up to $150,000 to L3 now. They're the global aviation specialist, and you've seen their name on a lot of products and a lot of software and things like that. But um, it is specifically to expand diversity in the um, pilot career profession and specifically for females so that's good to hear
0: yeah it's fantastic so yeah one hundred fifty thousand bucks across a couple of scholarships two twenty five thousand dollar and eight twelve thousand five hundred dollars so uh that's great money and uh, a good cause to support there at their academy
1: that's right ian and as you wrote recently um in aopa pilot magazine that the female pilot population currently only makes up about 7% of all certificated pilots, and you had a lot of insight to that. For folks who didn't see that article, I highly recommend they go to aopa.org and look up Ian's name and check it out.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Also, hey, we got to talk about next flying and food. My two of my favorite pastimes. This is a really cool list. The hundred dollar hamburgers put out of the best airport restaurants in the country.
1: That's right. If you added beer, flying and food, that's (laughs) That's going to be three of our favorite things. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. But yeah, so uh, so. You would have to have been nominated, though, and uh, and published in the one hundred dollar hamburger website. But we're going to go through a list of the ten best U.S. fly-in restaurants for twenty nineteen. Ian, are you ready to go?
0: Yeah, let's let's hit it.
1: I'm going to let you start it off.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. So the first one, and I love the name of this place. I got to go there someday. Jake's Joint at the Municipal Airport in Ardmore, Oklahoma.
1: Coming in uh, ninth here. Uh, in no specific order, but listen, number nine, the historic terminal at Bowman Field in Louisville, Kentucky, home of the Kentucky Derby, is a Bistro La Relais. How do you pronounce that? Relais? R-E-L-A-I-S?
0: I don't know. It sounds very fancy. The Bistro La Relais? Relais. Relais. Oh, we'll have to know.
1: go there and check it out, but it's an Art Deco <laughs> interior, reminiscent of the cafe from the movie Casablanca.
0: Oh, that sounds cool. Uh, you've heard of the Beaumont Hotel Airport in uh, Beaumont, Kansas. They oh, also yeah. have a restaurant there. It's called... The Cafe, which is now reopened for spring.
1: Nice. And uh, if you're looking to be in the Indianapolis area, how about Eagle Creek Air Park? Make your way to Rick's Cafe Boatyard, where seafood is flowing in from around the country.
0: Mm-hmm. And now that I should point out, it sounds a little weird to say Boatyard Cafe on an airport. So they took a little bit of liberties with these. That one's across the street. And I think a lot of them are kind of, you know, like across the street. So just keep that in mind if you go to Eagle Creek. So next up is Pilot Pete's Restaurant, uh, which is at Schaumburg Regional in Schaumburg, Illinois.
1: And that's like a Chicago suburb, right, Ian?
0: Yeah, yeah, you got it.
1: All right. And then next up on the list, if you're a World War II fanatic, check out DeKalb Peachtree Airport in Atlanta. Check out the 57th Fighter Group Restaurant. Which I have personally been to, Ian, and I gotta tell you, it is fantastic. Tell you why, they have a great uh, Mother's Day brunch, number one. So if you're anywhere in the neighborhood in May in Georgia, that's a great place to go, but a good Sunday brunch. But also, well, every Sunday they have a great brunch, but also, in the bathrooms, they broadcast World War II, you know, tunes on Grammy phones. The place looks like a bunker, <laughs> and if you wanted to get That's a biplane cool. ride, there's a ramp right outside the back door of the restaurant for biplane rides.
0: That's awesome. Sounds like sounds great. Great. It's a good uh, good airport to do some airplane watching. Yeah. That's right. I love this line from Dan Amowitz, who wrote the story. He says, "For every leg of an airport traffic pattern, there's a restaurant waiting to be named." So the the so-called Downwind Cafe, it's at the Spruce Creek Flying Community in Daytona Beach.
1: I would like to check that out one day too. Now, a quick sidebar, there's also a Downwind Cafe at Atlanta's Peachtree Cab Airport, so don't be confused. <laughs> All right, uh, so the Harris Ranch Restaurant at Harris Ranch Airport in uh, Coalinga, California. That's a great place to go if you're on the West Coast. Check it out.
0: That sounds good. They have their own ranch-raised beef, uh, which sounds awesome. Oaked, smoked prime Oh, man, I love prime rib. That sounds really good. Flo's Airport Cafe in Chino. That's a popular one.
1: Have you ever been to Chino, California? I don't mean to put you on the spot. I've only been to California a couple of times, and I missed that one.
0: Yeah, I haven't been to Chino. I've heard great things about Flow, those from some folks who have. And, uh, yeah, I guess they're famous for chicken fried steaks. So, All right. yeah, I'll have to check that one out.
1: Well, if you're closer to the midlands of the country, how about Gaston's Restaurant at Gaston's Airport in Lakeview, Arkansas? It's a fishing theme, and it, Dan says it reels in the clientele with sesame grouper cheeks and a lot of other seafood specialties. And, yes, there are still— burgers that come with your choice of river chips or fries
0: fantastic so you mentioned the uh 57th fighter group restaurant david what what uh what about you what what would you vote for what, what are some airport restaurants you love
1: you know we did mention that uh, i mentioned it the downwind cafe over at uh the capuch street in atlanta is is really good um because that's more casual it was a cool place you could hear some um you can hear some music on friday nights i really like that i used to go there with my family a little bit but uh, we kind of have a cool airport restaurant here. It might not be on this list, but uh, the Flyways Cafe here at Frederick Airport, and for especially for folks who are going to come to our flying in May, that's a good place to go for crab cakes. Hmm, there you go. That's a good one. That is a good one.
0: You know what I found is, um, I, and I don't know about these on the list, but I, I've had this occasion before. I, uh, you know, being a whatever a millennial or a, a, a late Gen Xer. Um, I've never, you know, as I've grown up, I don't carry cash. That has not served me well at airport restaurants. I find that disproportionately, airport restaurants seem to only accept cash. Uh, have you found
1: that? A lot of them are kind of small mom and pop shops like that in Rome, Georgia. They had a cafe that was the same way. So, um, yeah, I have found that to be the case sometimes. So it, it does, it does make sense to put an extra twenty bucks or so in your flying bag, you know, to make sure you have something nearby. <laughs> Have some cash on hand.
0: I love that. Right on. Very good. Very good. Very good. All right. So, hey, let's talk about some good work GA pilots are doing. Everyone's, of course, heard about the flooding going on in Nebraska and across the Midwest. And GA pilots have just, you know, as members of the community, I mean, the story here is they have just gotten it done. They've just stepped up and um, headed to the airport. They've rented airplanes, used their own airplanes. Charter operators are donating, and they are just helping out, getting people out, supplies, and it's just a fantastic story.
1: That's true, Ian, and then it also uh, warms our hearts to see that some of the national media has picked up on this, CNN, for instance, and also the Omaha Times. But over at Fremont, Nebraska, they specifically talked to a pilot who showed up and basically got to work and started helping people get into and out of these flooded areas, get well get out of the flooded areas and and get into other places, and also supervise some some of what was going on, some of the relief efforts. And all of a sudden, it ended up being uh, one of those granular things where all you know ended up being about what thirty pilots or so that started donating their services, and and it took off from there.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, this this story in particular that you mentioned, Lockhorn, he was just hanging out at the airport, I think, and probably lo- just looking to help folks and um, people. I guess word got out through social media and and around the town that um, pilots were helping out. And so people were just coming to the airport saying, I need a ride somewhere. And so everything from uh, this story, which is a young mom who uh, was trying to reunite with her baby who had been at the grandma's house. To, uh, to a guy who took a whole university dance team to a competition. So it's pretty neat.
1: You know, pilots generally do open their, open their hearts for situations like this, and that does, again, show the importance of general aviation and how we can get things done, especially in, in areas that are hard hit like that. And I think you were talking about Tanner Lockhart, who uh, approached a a young woman and asked if if she needed a ride to Omaha and she broke down in in tears right in front of him. So that was pretty amazing story. Uh, And and really uh, there are tons of those kind of stories that are bubbling up to the surface right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Really fantastic stuff. And so um, just really neat to see everybody kind of helping out. And and again, it was, you know, it it wasn't um, coordinated in any sort of way. People were just kind of doing it. And so and I thought it was awesome. Like you said, CNN picked that up, and so people around the country get to see what kind of the rest of us already know, which is that, um, you know, GA pilots are, are just big members of the community who who love to help out, so really, really great story there.
1: Yeah, glad to hear about that, and and it's going to be a long time to get all that cleaned up because of the confluence of a couple of rivers that overflowed there, and and really, as we record this in, it is not over yet because uh, we're midweek, and, and there's still water coming in, so they're there's a lot of work yet to be done. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Hey, let's move on. Something every pilot is talking about. Um, doesn't affect GA necessarily directly, but, w- but we all are just very curious about what's going on here. And that's the 737 crashes. You had a great story online about uh, just some insight into how this um, MCAS system works. Uh, not something that we see in GA a lot, uh, but uh, I just thought this was a fascinating take on what's going on. And um, some good perspective here also from the acting FAA administrator, Um Dan Ullwell. So, talk us through kind of this MCAT system and, and, and how it works.
1: Well, th- first of all, thanks, Ian. I appreciate that. You know, um, we, we actually were trying to get a little bit of a pilot's perspective on this because it's something that it was kind of new to all of us. So, yeah, I wanted to explain the maneuvering characteristics augmentation system. That's what people are calling MCAS or MCAS. And this is uh, at the heart of some of the problems, we think, with the 737 MAX. And we're talking about not just a, a mechanical system and a computer software system, but there are also some physical properties that the pilots experience. And they, they just are, are a little baffled by it because they might not have had the correct training or enough refresher training to know that that system is even installed in these airplanes. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how, how does it work? So I was talking to a professional pilot friend of mine who has experience with the 737 MAX 8. And so it, the system affects the stabilizer trim. But there are a couple of ways to defeat it, and that's a, a key thing that will come up later in our discussion. But the MCAS doesn't move the primary controls, um, and, and an MCAS doesn't function when the autopilot is active. But when the autopilot is on, it's when it's on, it's not even a, a, a player, uh, my pilot friend said. So switching off the electric trim overrides the system. And, Ian, there are cutoff switches located on the center pedestal near the red fire cutoffs. That's between the pilot and the first officer. And both of them can access those switches. Hmm. So that's a key thing. But you have to recognize a runaway, basically, Similar to a runaway trim situation, to be able to flip those switches. Yeah, so I guess I understand the
0: difference with the Max is that they, it's a little bit longer because they had to uh, compensate for these these different engine mounts, and so they the the I guess the we'll call it the stability arm is a little bit different. And so apparently they've were pitch forces they were relatively consistent across the seven thirty seven line with the Max they're a little bit different, and so this system is meant to essentially augment it to make it a little more like the old 737s. I mean, is that fair?
1: That's exactly correct, Ian. You're right. And actually, I should have explained that first before I got into what the system was called and everything. But it does enable the aircraft to have a similar feel to previous 737 models. But it can be touchy at high angles of attack. So the idea of the system is that it trims it down, it trims your airplane down a little bit. So you'll pull the same force on the yoke as in the O airplanes, my pilot friend told me and that so the idea is that it will it the idea that Boeing went into it uh, thinking was that that pilots wouldn't have to be severely retrained because this system would sort of mimic the old feel of the older 737s
0: so yeah i think there's lots of interesting questions yeah because it's like it, you've got this the system that's meant to just sort of augment and it doesn't take over primary control and so tons of questions coming about out about whether it's, first of all, the certification process, whether that was duly explored during the process. But then I guess I, maybe the bigger issue is, uh, like you mentioned, that they didn't tell the pilots about this system. And so this thing could be Going in the background and you have no idea and so it's it's automatically retrimming and uh, and essentially just starts to fight you more and more on the controls
1: that's right and specifically what was going on uh, earlier in a earlier 737 my pilot friend explained to me that when you pull five pounds of force on the yoke you get five degrees of pitch change when you pull 10 pounds you get 10 degrees of pitch change but on the max because the engines were moved a little bit and they're more powerful. It only took about a 10 pound pull to get 15 degrees of pitch change. And that's why that MCAS system was installed to kind of level that out, kind of trim that out so that the aircraft would respond more similar to an older 737. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. I mean, you know, one argument here is that the airplane works just fine. It's pilot training. And in fact, um, you know, Jim Fallows from The Atlantic wrote about this, that the, uh, when you look into the NASA database, it's happened, at least that pilots have reported only to NASA, and so I'm sure there are more, but uh, it's happened four times in the U.S., I guess, with pilots who have experienced this and figured out how to disarm the system. But it is, uh, it's pretty fascinating, and it'll be interesting to see whether they, ha- they do software changes uh, that sort of uh, lessen the system or disable it, or whether it's just going to be flight manual and retraining.
1: Well, do you think it was more of a, of a training issue, Ian, or do you think it's more of a mechanical issue, or do you think it's more of an awareness issue?
0: Hmm, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't want to speculate, I guess, without having flown it, but um, certainly I think they were negligent in not telling pilots about it and doing a flight manual update. I mean, that, to me, seems like a basic.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm, a, uh, I'm wondering if uh, the word had gotten out um, a little bit sooner that there was a little bit different system on board that... that that might have been good awareness to have, just as if you were updating anything on any aircraft. I mean, as a general aviation pilot, if we tweak something on our panels, it has to be noted in the logbook, and we learn about it. Sometimes there are placards that have to be placed on the aircraft and things like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, hey, this is going to be an issue, I I think, uh, certainly through the confirmation hearings, uh, for the newly announced, uh, nominated head of the FAA.
1: That's right. So Steve Dixon, who was the senior vice president of flight ops for Delta Airlines out of Atlanta, was nominated by President Trump to take over the FAA administration's uh, key role to be the administrator. And uh, this is, as we record this, has just happened uh, yesterday.
0: He seems like a real heavy hitter. I mean, this guy has got quite the resume.
1: Well, he does. He does have a a great resume. I, I was telling you off uh, off air before the podcast that it looks like he kind of lives in my old neighborhood in Atlanta. So that that's a cool thing. <laughs> but yeah, he was. Res- they
0: definitely uh, took that
1: in. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> they, def- they were like, "Where do you live? Do you live in Tulis's neighborhood?" Yeah. Are, you know, thumbs you're up.
1: <laughs> thumbs up if that's the case. So now, uh, getting back to, in all seriousness, say he was uh, responsible for a lot of. Uh, Delta's safety operation and and the performance of their global flight ops, as well as training pilots and crew members and crew resources, crew scheduling, and regulatory compliance. So he does kind of have his, you know, feet in the water with a lot of the inner workings of an airline. Now, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing, Ian? What do you think?
0: Well, I you know normally you'd say uh, mixed, right? Because he's a pilot and so he's always going to have that perspective, which is important. But, you know, maybe is he going to have the airline, uh, you know, sort of mantra as he goes into it? I, I will say it's gotten all accolades from, from the GA organizations. Uh, Mark Baker worked with him on the Next Gen Advisory Committee, the NAC, uh, and had really good things to say. And critically, Dixon has been against user fees in the past. That
1: is a key thing, against so-called privatization. Uh, in the past. And I think that's a good thumbs up for him. Personally, I, I, I do like someone who knows the inner workings of the aviation industry. We have a lot on the table. We have ADSB um, coming into play that, you know, folks need to be compliant by January the 1st. And that's something that a pilot would probably understand and be able to get the word out. And don't forget, there's all kinds of stuff happening in the drone world. And, you know, we've talked about eVTOL and things like that. So the FAA administrator kind of has yeah, pretty big shoes to fill and a lot to a lot to handle at the same time
0: yeah absolutely definitely in the next couple of years alright so David um, picking up that Boeing theme again uh, let's bring on Sam Graves he, he's got some strong feelings about this that I think people will find interesting
2: So obviously a lot going on in the last week uh, or a couple of weeks regarding the 737. Um, and, I, you know, my first question for somebody like you is, you know, what, what's happening from a congressional standpoint? Are we, are we going to see hearings for, uh, for Boeing and for the FAA about, you know, how did this MCAS and any other system changes get approved without, uh, or, you know, seemingly without the level of scrutiny that normally one would expect? I mean, did did it happen that way, which is the speculation, and if so, what's that mean?
3: No, and and we'll probably, there's a good chance we'll have hearings on the certification process, but I think that we're concentrating completely on the wrong thing here. We're looking at equipment and equipment failures, which, you know, you can have that in any aircraft. Mm -hmm. Why? You know, what I want to concentrate on are the pilots. In both Lion Air and Ethiopia, they were fighting the airplane, um, you know, all the way to the end. Why didn't they disengage? Why didn't they hit the uh, stabilizer trim cutouts? Why didn't they just disengage the system and fly their plane? And that's what, you know, it it doesn't matter. And, And, you know, going back, okay, if we have problems with, sensors, um, and it's giving false readings to the MCAS system or to the autopilot, or we have, you know, other issues that we don't know about when it comes to equipment, but bottom line is, and every single one of us, at least in the United States, that learns to fly, you know, every single one of us has learned that if you have an equipment, for, you know, I don't care if you're flying a Seneca or a 737 MAX, you disengage the system and you fly the plane, and what I'm afraid, you know, first of all, we don't know what the extent of training was with the Ethiopian pilots. You know, when you look at the number of hours on the co-pilot, uh-huh. it was minuscule, and then you turn around and look at the pilot. So you got a 29-year-old that's supposedly amassed 8,000 hours. We'll figure that up. Yeah. <laughs> that guy must be Superman to be able to put that kind of time uh, in an airplane, you, you know, so I question that as well. But it goes back to the same thing. Okay, so disengage the system and fly the plane. And that's what I'm concerned about. Some of these countries are trying to get pilots in the pipeline so fast that they're teaching them how to fly computers, and not teaching them how to fly an aircraft.
2: So what's the solution for that?
3: Well, we can't, you know, we can't have any impact on what other countries do as far as standards for their pilot training or you know what they train for, how they train. I mean, Boeing can put out a, a circular or an AD or do whatever they want to do, but if a country doesn't comply with it. There's not a whole lot you can do about it. You know, here in the United States, it's different. We've had 50,000 flights, 50,000, since the Boeing 737 MAX was introduced, and this is in North America, Canada and the United States. 50,000 flights, and we haven't seen this manifest itself here. You know, and, and the fact of the matter is, in every 737 MAX pilot that you talk to, they all say the same thing. You know, obviously, when you have a, you know, stabilizer trim problem or a runaway trim, you, you disengage the system, you hit the two cutoff switches and, and you fly the airplane. So it makes you wonder you know if we've had 50,000 flights since the introduction and yet you know, we haven't seen this here, but, but we've you know, now seen it twice and with foreign
2: airlines right. But ha- uh, have there not been what? some uh, ASRS reports and, and, and other feedback from pilots in the United States where they have they have experienced some of this, but it just didn't hasn't re- obviously hasn't led to an accident.
3: So we had a brief with the FAA um, and uh, uh, acting administrator, and uh, all well. And Dan said that they went back immediately after the Lion Air crash, and they went back and looked at, at the uh, NASA reports and, and everything. And none of them, none of them were connected to or reported an issue with this. Okay. Um, so they didn't have anything, you know, in reporting when it came to this. So and you've got two major pilots' unions as well. major pilot unions that are saying these airplanes are safe, you know, and that's all the pilots in them, these airplanes are safe we can put them in the air, you know, we can fly them, you know, I'm going to go with with what Dan said, he said the first thing we looked at were those NASA reports and we couldn't find anything.
2: Okay, well that's good to know that they they took that step.
3: That was the first thing they did, and that's the reason too you know, there's been some uh, criticism on the FAA about waiting to ground the planes, so you look at the data, first of all, all those other countries they grounded the planes before there was any data whatsoever available. So they did it based on pure emotion. The FAA, you know, they run off of data, complete data. And, you know, they're taking a look at the fact that, you know, weren't any NASA reports on this. They're looking at the fact that, you know, we've had all these flights in North America and not a manifestation of this. And, you know, they're waiting on the black boxes, which, by the way, that's Ethiopia. Um, and you got to remember something, too. The Ethiopian government owns Ethiopian Airlines. It's their crown jewel, and they're going to do everything they can to try to protect the integrity of their management uh, and their pilots. And so, they are being very, very careful with who gets to see the data. You know, who's working with them on this. They're, you know, i worry that they're going to manipulate uh, the data in that respect. It took forever to get it to, you know, to a country to be able to uh, to analyze it. You know, the United States offered you know, their expertise and help, and, and Ethiopia didn't want it. And so finally the FAA was just, you know, they were like, just please send it somewhere, you know, send it someplace so we can get a look at this. Uh, but, it, you know, it took forever to uh, uh, to get any hard data. Right. Are you not reassured that the NTSB? I, I understand they dispatched uh, three investigators to uh, assist in the data recovery process? Yeah, and, and, you know, we're still, I'm still waiting to hear, Um, you know, just how well they're working with them, how much they're allowing them, you know, to be a part of this process. You know, that, to be quite honest with you, it does worry me, um, because they are in charge of the data. They're black boxes. And, you know, they can, again, they can manipulate who can see it and who can't see it. And that's something that concerns me when it's in the best interest of the world, flying public, um, to get this information. But, you know, you've got politics involved as well as emotion, and, you know, that... That creates an issue. So, and, and the bottom line is, you know what the sad thing is? is the NTSB and the FAA are the world leaders. I mean, they're the gold standard when it comes to aviation safety. And, you know, the, the fact that they're not a bigger part of this process, you know, is, is telling kind of in and of itself.
2: So what do you think is going to happen in the next uh, couple of weeks regarding all this? How's it going to play out?
3: Well, uh, Boeing's going to release their you know, there's software fixed by the end of this month. Hopefully it'll be all the planes to be upgraded by April, at least those in the United States. You know, Congress will probably, will look into, you know, hearings on certification and, and that sort of thing, you know, probably go through the process, maybe get more briefings. We have been, I've been in contact with the FAA or DOT um, every day since this happened, you know, just getting regular updates, but we'll probably have a couple more briefings as more data comes out, you know, look at the flight profiles. Um, they do look very similar. Lion Air in Ethiopia, and you know, if this was a sensor failure in the MCAT system uh, activated, you know, push the throttles forward and push the nose down. You know, they were dealing with obviously a malfunctioning trim problem. You know, and and so my focus is going to be on why didn't they deactivate the system? Why didn't they just fly the plane?
2: Okay. Uh, Jim, did you have anything else?
3: I, I don't, actually. I think that's,
2: I mean, based on what we know right now, I think that, <laughs> uh, I, I can't think of another intelligent question to ask at this point with the okay. data that we have available to us. Okay.
3: Well, it's, I mean, it, it's a, obviously a sensitive situation, and there's a lot of fingers being pointed. But, again, it comes back to, you know, pilots. And, and I, you know, I've i traveled all over the world, and I got a, I've got real heartburn when when I'm flying on a foreign airline. Um, you know, I want to know if they train to FAA standards or if they train to their own standards. And, you know, this is something that it, that it con- concerns me. I don't I don't worry so much about, you know, in the United States mm-hmm. um, at all because I know what the pilot training standards are. You know, I'm an ATP. I know what they went through. And then I also know on top of that what the airlines require of their pilots and their, you know, continuing training recurrency and, and everything that goes along with that. You know, and there's also a lot of talk about the technology You know, there's no doubt that technology has made aviation safer, but you've got to wonder, um, particularly when it comes to, you know, some of the foreign carriers, you know, this is a technology, does it correct pilot deficiencies or is it creating pilot deficiencies? You know, again, that comes back to, I think there are people out there that learn to fly a computer and can fly a computer real well, but when it comes right down to it and they actually have to fly the airplane, you know, I question the ability.
2: Right. So, regarding your comments about, uh, you know, foreign pilot training and that sort of thing, one thing the FAA or DOT, at least, has the authority to potentially ban a, a foreign carrier from coming into U.S. airspace from a safety or security standpoint. Is is that under consideration for for airlines that maybe have suspect uh, uh, pilot training?
3: I I can't answer that. You'd have to ask DOT. But you know, I can say that you know, it's absolutely it it, it should be under consideration and, and taking a real hard look at this. And I know they do. You know, and, and you also have to wonder, too, It's one thing for a country to tell you. Yeah, we, we train to uh, U.S. standards, but, but do they really? And, and then again, you know, in the U.S., you can't put a pilot with 200 or 360. I've heard two different uh, reports on what the co-pilot had, but you can't put them in the right seat of, a, of an airliner in the United States. So if they're training to, to U.S. standards, they're certainly not adhering to U.S. standards. Um, when it comes to that. So, you
2: know, therein, there's an issue right there all by itself. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, very well. Well, thanks, uh, Congressman, for taking okay. the time. I appreciate it and for sharing your insights.
3: Thanks.
2: All right. Stay dry. <laughs> Good luck out Bye. there. Bye. All right. See you. Bye.
3: Okay.
0: So lots, of, uh, lots to think about with Graves. Uh, really kind of a thought-provoking perspective he brings there.
1: That's right. Representative Sam Graves. And, of course, he's a longtime pilot and uh, a Missouri congressman and kind of a friend of GA. So he does have an interesting perspective on it. He does have a lot of experience, and he brings a lot, a lot of questions to the table.
0: Yeah. Hey, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hanson.
1: And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you could find us at AOPA.org slash Hangar Talk. And we're on iTunes and at the Sporty's Takeoff app. All right. We'll
0: see you next time, David.
1: See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.